This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Você me foi tão louca 
Você pensa que eu sou louca And I won't let you drive me crazy I won't let you drive me crazy Você não vai me pôr tão louca Você não vai me pôr tão louca Madonna from her new album, Crazy. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we talk to Kirsty Miller and we also speak with the indomitable Kay Sarah. While Cricket Australia has released a new policy about trans and gender diverse athletes. On the line, we have diversity in sport and inclusion expert Kirsty Miller. Kirsty, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, James. Great to be back. Always so good to talk to you. Kirsty. what does this policy actually say? Firstly, it's, it's hit the news big time, James. Our Prime Minister today, Scott Morrison, it seems to be the biggest issue on his mind to, to pay out this, this new policy of Cricket Australia. But basically what this new policy that Cricket Australia has done, and it's unique in a couple of senses, is that they've created a policy for the grassroots level of sport and there's also created one for the elite level of sport. If we look at the elite level of sport within the policy Cricket Australia has created, it mirrors the, the requirements of the International Cricket Committee's international policy, which, which was developed and put out back in 2017. So it's nothing new in that sense. It's the Australian policy now meeting international guidelines, but where the Australian policy takes it a step further and a lot further than, say, the International Olympic Committee policy for trans athletes, where, where that policy is like a one-paragraph um, couple of sentences, James, this policy goes into it a lot further. There's, there's now appeal mechanisms and, and a lot more procedures to go through when a, when a trans athlete applies to play at the elite level. So there'll be a lot of... Um, um, because there can be concerns with strength and stamina and endurance physique with, with trans athletes under sex discrimination legal guidelines and, and certain state anti-discrimination laws, exemptions can be granted if concerns with strength, endurance or physique exist. So this policy like lays out all the groundworks and all the procedures that you have to go through if someone wants to appeal someone of a trans background playing in the women's sport and, and I'm very impressed with the, 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 the type of things that they will be doing to ensure fairness in sport because that's, you know, a concern. So, you know, the, the, the chances of someone coming in and having a huge disparity in ability between girls, well, that's going to be addressed immediately within this policy. So... It's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, people are banging on so much, like the Prime Minister. But in reality, this policy enables players to play according to the to the gender that they identify with. And that could be, you know, female to male uh, trans people as well. Absolutely. So it's very they're inclusive. Often, they're, they're absolutely, and, and they're very often forgotten in, in this discussion, the, the, the female to male trans people. And, like, back in, in, in fact, the first ever AFL trans player was a trans man way back in 2009 and, and people underestimate the ability of these trans men in sport you know I, I predict some of these trans men in endurance events will be Olympic champions in a couple of Olympics time so um, yeah they're often forgotten in the discussion but um, it's mainly the fears relate to the, the male to female stereotype sort of concerns which you know Scott Morrison without even reading the policy he bags it you know he, he, the, the, you know, 
Should we be surprised? There's been several policies in the last few years that's come out about trans people, and Scott Morrison has bagged every single one of them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the language he used today was quite odd. He called it heavy-handed and mystifying. What's your response to those words? Um, He should have rang up Alex Blackwell and and, and every player of the Australian women's cricket team and asked them, were they heavy-handed in in their approach? That they were proactive in being involved in every part of this process, as were cricketed players, male and female, from all around Australia in, in local clubs, there was transgender people, there was medical experts. Nothing was heavy-handed whatsoever. So, you know, but Scott's got a got a bit of a, a history of these one-line jargons, you know, and, and we had the gender whisperer for years before with Scott. Now we've got a new slogan where us trans people are now heavy-handed in cricket. You know, most of us are too scared to go through the gates James, to, to go even watch a game of cricket. Hopefully this is the start of, you know, new generation of people that can go and watch cricket and play cricket and umpiring cricket. There's nothing heavy-handed whatsoever. How are trans athletes that you know, first of all, reacting to the policy and secondly, reacting to the rhetoric from the Prime Minister in relation to it? Very excited about policy, but unfortunately, James, whenever a new policy comes out, such as this, or when the federal guidelines were announced, or whenever a, a, a trans person wins a Pacific title in weightlifting, even though they're 80 kilograms way behind the world record, like it incites rhetoric and hate on social media. So whenever these things come out, we have a lull. So, you know, we do it really hard for the for a little while afterwards, especially when, you know, if you're a young 12-year-old cricketer playing in, in the suburbs in Melbourne and, and, and you turn the radio on and or open the newspaper tomorrow morning and you're going to have... Prime Minister Scott Morrison saying that we're heavy-handed and stuff. That that poor young trans child's probably not going to want to go to cricket on Saturday morning. You know? You know, this type of stuff, he says, affects real kids, real people in the community. And, and the trans community overall had the least rate of participation in sport anywhere in the world of any other group of people. And we battle just to get there. You're, of course, one of the best-known diversity and inclusion in sport commentators and experts in the country. You've got a long history in the field now. Uh, and as you said before, the Prime Minister has been saying things like this for a few years now. Has he ever reached out to people like you for advice or has his office ever reached out to inclusion and diversity in sport experts and said, look, you know, can I talk to you so that next time this issue comes up, uh, I'm a bit more nuanced and on the money with my language? Scott Morrison shows no no willingness at all to speak to our community or to individuals. And I've seen on social media many, many of us trans people try and communicate with him. I've seen, like, um, Georgie Stone, young GLBTI Australian of the Year, her mother, you know, try and communicate with Scott Morrison on, on social media. And, and this guy doesn't care. But, you know, he's got this view of our community that um, we shouldn't be here. You know, he, he, he blatantly was against gender-neutral passports back a couple of years ago, even though they've been in existence since 2013 in Australia and were introduced under the Liberal government. You know, he, he's bagging gender whisper fears and insight. I, I just really am saddened by you know, just young trans kids that could be, you know, going to school every day fearing being expelled, you know, just for being transgender.
You know, and, and Scott Morrison back in the Wentworth by-election back in November last year made a commitment that as soon as Parliament opens back up, they will remove these existing laws that allow any private school in Australia to bill or refuse enrolment to a trans child to remove these existing laws. Here we are today. <laughs> trans kids can still get expelled. The Prime Minister says we're heavy-handed into Australian cricket, you know. That's where this guy stands. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, Cricket Australia is known for being very conservative. Of course, it's the bastion of former, you know, PM John Howard, who was a huge cricket fan, had very strong ties to Cricket Australia. They're hardly radicals, yet they have developed this policy which, you know, you're lauded and, and, you know, many people have said it's a good thing. It just seems the Prime Minister is so out of step. But, Kirsty, can you tell us a little bit about the consultation process that Cricket Australia must have gone through before they enacted this policy? They can't have done it lightly. No, well, Cricket Australia were involved in, in the development of the federal guidelines for trans and gender diverse people in Australia that were released back in March, I believe it was. And that process alone was about a two-year consultation process. And that guideline there, the federal guidelines, that goes way, way above and beyond what the Australian cricket policy is. So they had about two years' practice at this and, and, and been partaking in all this study and all these consultation sessions. And these sessions for the federal guidelines were massively diverse and inclusive, including all stakeholders, you know, and, and those federal guidelines in, in my book are the number one guidelines for trans and gender diverse people anywhere in the world. They, they are best practice. So um, the Australian cricket, and they signed a commitment with Rugby League and AFL and Rugby Union and soccer in Australia, the major, they call them comps, and, and the Australian Human Rights Commission. So they had all that to start them off. And then with the consultation process with Australian cricket, like I said, they got all the girls involved at the elite level, all the girls at the state level. They had trans players at local level and, and they were dealing with human rights commissions. And, and so it's been a massively diverse and, and, and broad consultative process. You know, there's been nothing like this developed anywhere before. And, of course, Cricket Australia's had its controversies in recent years. Uh, this is a good news story for them, but it seems the Prime Minister's raining on their parade, pouring the kibosh on it. Well, you know what, James? I've been a avid cricket fan since way back, you know, in, in the Dennis Lilly and Tomo days, and and you know, when I sort of fell out of love with cricket over the last probably twenty years, when, when you know all that sledging come on, and, and then I really lost respect for cricket through that ball tampering stuff. And but today, I love cricket more than ever. You know, like you said, it's a male-dominated historically sport. These guys are leading the way. You know, who would have thought a sport with Tomo and Billy that used to be champions are leading the way in, in trans inclusion and diversity in sport, you know? It's a massive thing, and, and to have the Prime Minister rain upon it without having any talks or feedback to the people that, number one, developed the policy, and, and, and some of the girls that partook in it, like Alex, you know, it, it just shows you the type of leader Australia's got at the moment. We haven't got a leader for everyone. Of course, Cricket Australia doesn't operate in a bubble. They would be aware of what other sporting bodies are doing regarding gender diversity. What other sporting bodies can we expect uh, to enact policies like this in the in the near future? 
who's working we, on it? When we developed the federal guidelines, every major sport in Australia jumped on board. So we had people from Hockey Australia who expressed their commitment to the federal guidelines, Australian Rugby League, Australian Soccer, the AFL, all the major sports in Australia are now redigging their policies. And, and they're, they're taking the... Because the original OIC policy back in 2003 and back in 2015, the two policies, they were simply guidelines for sports as a start base to make their policies. And it's taken this long now for sports to go that extra step. And it must be noted, James, that this policy that Australian cricket has developed and also the federal guidelines, they're living, breathing documents. They're, they're, they're not the end. They're the start in all of this. You know, so that they can be tweaked every 12 months or, or when the need arises. You know, it's a work in progress. No one's saying they've got all the absolute answers in all of this. But I'm absolutely confident that the way that Australian cricket has set up this new policy by, number one, that the processes that the trans athlete has to go through to apply, which is quite exhaustive at the elite level, and then also the appeal mechanisms if, if problems arise and, and all the confidentiality stuff. And that, you know, it's a brilliant policy. We should be applauding Australian cricket like I absolutely am. I, I love cricket now more than ever. Have any other international cricketing associations implemented similar policies? I believe um, the cricket over in England has a policy pretty much just based on the ICC rules. Um, nothing that I have seen goes into the extent that the the policy that Australian cricket has done. That the, the AFL policy is unique as well, where it has different measurable criteria that has to be met. But the, the biggest difference between the AFL and the Australian cricket policy is in the level of testosterone, where the AFL requires a, a maximum of five nanomoles per litre whereas the Australian cricket mirrors the OIC 10 nanomoles requirements and the AFL requires a 24-month period of reduced testosterone, whereas the Australian cricket one requires a 12-month, but that time can be extended under the Australian cricket policy with, like I said, you know, pretty strict monitoring criteria and you know, they'll, they'll take pictures of the trans athlete playing the game and, and they'll have biomedical tests undertaken and so it's quite exhausting. It must be very invasive for the players. Well, I believe that the way that they've written the policy up, number one, that they're you know, going to support the trans athlete going through this. They're going to offer support from day one. And, you know, it's, we knew in all this, James, and it's going to take a team effort to get this policy right. And, and as a trans athlete and trans pioneers in sport, I think most of us are quite prepared to, you know, to put ourselves out there in some shape or form. That's what most of us have done in the past. And we want to work with our competitors, just like our competitors want us to work with them. So, you know, it's going to just bring us all together and, and have respectful conversations. And we might have to tweak the policy in 12 months' time. We may not have to, you know, but, you know, this is a great start point. Kirsty, the last time we spoke in May, we discussed the Castor-Semenya decision in athletics. First of all, give us a rehash of that decision and then perhaps segue into what the ongoing implications of it are. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Castor, unfortunately, in the last couple of weeks has 
Um, the, the Swiss Federal Supreme Court over there has made a ruling and they did suspend the, the requirements for Castor to to um, reduce her testosterone, but they've overturned that now and, and now Castor to compete has to lower her, lower her testosterone and with the World Championships in Doha coming up in September, it effectively puts her out of competition. The federal court over there has not made a ruling yet, but they have indicated that it doesn't look good for Castor. And, and as I expected, I, I didn't think she would win that case over there, James, because the, the type of powers this court in in Switzerland has, they really don't have the, the, the power to, to look at the actual evidence that was presented originally at CAT. So, unfortunately for Castor, it's you know going to come down to the final ruling in Switzerland, which you know I don't believe will be positive. And unfortunately, other than that, Castor's going to have to remove herself from sport and and seek avenues to take this beyond the the sports courts. Maybe the you know, the International Human Rights Committee in Europe. That would be her only option. So this decision has effectively pushed Castor out of the sport. It's pushed her out of sport, James. It's very punitive. This girl was born a girl. She was raised a girl. She went all through school as a girl. She got married as a female. She competed internationally for over a decade as a female. And these, this IAAF has effectively called her a male and said you can you know, go compete with the boys unless you get chemically castrated. And it seems to be based on a flawed science around testosterone. An absolute flawed science. An absolute flawed science. Um, Castor, it is quite well known now that she is XY type physiology. That is who this policy relates to. And what international sports are doing, James, they're trying to get every single physiology and, and have the same testosterone requirement placed upon them. So... Someone like Castor, if she's reduced to under five nanomoles and say her normal was 18, Castor's going to become very, very unwell. So we're turning an Olympic champion into a patient, effectively, into a medical patient. That's not what sport's about. I was going to ask you what, what she would have to go through to reduce those levels. Medically, what's involved with it? Obviously, it makes um, someone very sick, but, but what, what do they have to do to reduce one's testosterone levels? As, well, because she's XY physiology, completely different to what, say, an XX biologically born female would have to do. Um, Castor effectively would have to take an anti-androgen, a drug like Andrica, that, that, that stops the um, androgen receptors reacting to testosterone in your body. This is the same type of treatment, James, that in some correctional jurisdictions, they, they administer the sex offenders to chemically castrate them. The same medication they give to prostate cancer sufferers to stop their testosterone and chemically castrate them. So this is um, the same treatment that girls like me get, that choose to get to, to affirm our, our genders. So it massively changes everything in your body. About 200 different things in your body every single day are going to be adversely affected for cancer. So there's huge consent issues with this decision. Absolutely. The, the World Medical Association have strongly condemned the, this practice. That They've condemned it 
about three or four times now. It's medically unethical. It's medically flawed. The United Nations have strongly condemned this this treatment. It's it's really a me too moment in, in women's sport. Kirsty Miller, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us on 3CR today. It's always wonderful to talk to you. An absolute pleasure, and yeah, just well done, Cricket Australia, and yeah, just go educate yourself, Scott Morrison, please. <laughs> Good on you, Kirsty. Thanks so much. Always great to See chat. We'll talk again. Cheers. Bye. And that was Kirsty Miller, a sports and inclusion diversity expert. You are on In Your Face on 3CR. Here's Sade. Immigrant. Among us. 
You're listening to 3CR Radio.
Dandy Warhol's there with Godless in your face on 3CR with James. Our next guest was the doyen of queer media and entertainment in Melbourne for all, oh God, a decade, I think. They now join us from a secret location in northeastern Victoria. Kay Sarar is on the line. Hello, Kay. Welcome back to 3CR. Hello. Good to be here on this Friday. It's wet up here. I don't know what it's like down there. Where exactly are you? Well, it's the northeast of Victoria. And just as a, a lady need never tell her age, a drag queen should never tell her location. But can I say that it is in the Independent Republic of Indigo? Ah, very interesting. So you have become a social media political commentator. What issues at the moment are getting up your goat? I know there's a few, and I know there's a few people that do. Well, you know, the thing is, I think that we're, you know, you know that we're in a really poor state of affairs when you've got uh, has-been drag queens actually commenting on the state of federal politics. That's where we find ourselves. But it is true because, of course, there's no, there's no rule book for what to do as a drag queen when you hang up your stilettos. And what are you supposed to do? So I've retreated to the archives of Twitter. And every so often I chuck a couple of stones out there and I do a lot of retweeting. And I try and link in with people that have half a brain cell floating around. But it is true. I've had a few things to say about federal politics. Do you want me to go into it? Or oh, should yes, I please do. I don't but know whether you, you can afford... I'm just concerned that 3CR are not going to be able to afford the legal suit. Do I mention any names? How's that sound? Well, look, just don't defame anyone. <laughs> yeah, easier talk said than done. Talk about policies, perhaps. Oh, just talk policies. Well, look, of course, being a big old lefty myself, I'm particularly concerned about the state of affairs in the Federal Labor Party. I mean, I find it extraordinary that, you know, one little election defeat... And they're all running around with their tails between their legs and, you know, oh, woe is me. Oh, what, what do we stand for? What are we going to do? If they chuck the baby out with the bathwater, I can't be the only one that's really distressed at this state of affairs. And, of course, it would happen at a time when we've got, well, I mean, to be frank, a Pentecostal as our Prime Minister who doesn't seem to understand the division between state and church. Yeah, he might do. But from my impressions are that he doesn't really know what's going on there. And a whole heap of, well, look, I think to say ministers is being very kind. But there's a whole lot of gentlemen mostly up there, white gentlemen, let's be frank, who, hmm, I just question their reason for being in politics. I mean, are they there to enact policy for the betterment of us all? Or are they there to... Well, I won't say line their own pockets, because I think that would be really unkind. But, look, I can't be the only one that has noticed a few threads that seem to be connected to unlikely uh, business interests and the like. How's that? I think I've been really diplomatic. You've been very tactful. Uh, of course, <laughs> what you're also referring to is the fact that, you know, ministerial standards and the Westminster system of ministerial accountability seems to have gone out the window. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that... Look, I don't, it's hard, look, this bores the bejeebies out of most people, but I find it fascinating. And, you know, I find, the thing is, we're in a situation where the Morrison government were elected and they didn't expect to be elected. I mean, you know, all of the, 
all of the the polls were saying it was going to be a Labor win. So, you know, Morrison and his band of Mary followers got elected. Good on them. But, you know, do they actually have any policies? And I think not. I mean, I think that's why we see such a, a, a slim showing in question time. And it's probably why he's got some dodgy characters in really important portfolios. I mean, look, I would have thought that action on climate change and action on the environment and, oh, look, let's just say really solid social security policy. I'm not going to even talk about robo-debt. But, I mean, all of these things are really important policies. I mean, we live in a world where increasingly wealth is being concentrated in a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage at the top. And, you know, I just think that, okay, that's fine. Rich people can have their money. They can do all of that. And, but, but, you know, I think to get to a position where you don't want to share any of that or you want to chuck a couple of crumbs off the table and hope that somebody down the bottom of the line catches them, I think it's a pretty poor state of affairs. So, look, I'm just sitting here in the independent Republic of Indigo waiting for the revolution, basically. It's interesting you talked about Scott Morrison's policy vacuum. Do you think that's why he's, you know, foraying into issues like Cricket Australia's policy around gender diversity? I mean, John Howard, at least, uh, never mixed politics and and sport insofar as using them as a a polarising device on on social issues. Polarising is a really good word. I mean, it's with Trump. We've seen him, you know, divide and rule and scapegoat and... And we've seen the ramifications of that. And look, I think we can expect to see a little bit more of that from Scott Morrison as he comes under pressure. And he will come under pressure because, I mean, look, the man may may be a very pleasant man, but bottom line is he doesn't have a lot of policies. I mean, you know, I think it's really poor to trot around talking about generosity and, um, you know, how how Christian he is. And you've got this shocking state of affairs with asylum seekers who are languishing in this kind of hellhole, I mean, let's be blunt, you know, I mean, it's just, it's not consistent with any any kind of reasonable uh, estimate of Christian um, values. So, you know, I mean, I think it's really dodgy. But yes, to be specific, his kind of poor showing on this recent uh, uh, ruling with regards to um, transgender folk and sports, I think it's it's kind of like if you don't understand the issues, then don't don't put put your two bob bid in. I mean, I think the, we've moved. The whole world has moved on, haven't they? I mean, what what is the? This has to be a tactic to divert attention from you know crises that are brewing or division that is brewing within his own ranks. I mean, every time that he does this, just all I say is think well. What's going on inside his own party? I mean, is there jostling for power? I mean, what's Dutton doing? What's Angus Taylor doing? What are these people actually doing? Or more to the point, what policies are they pursuing? And how out of sync are those policies with, you know, mainstream values in Australia? And you you can be sure that he, he uses this as a diversity tactic. I think. But then what do I know? I'm just a uh, washed-up drag queen sitting in the Independent Republic of Indigo. 
Of course, you have written many agony art comments uh, and columns over the years through your work at the Queer Press and given lots of, you know, etiquette and deportment and decorum advice for all sorts of people, <laughs> including politicians. You mentioned Anthony Albanese before in the Labor Party. Uh, what, uh, what advice uh, would you give him on deportment in politics? Well, I mean, look, just as Scott Morrison didn't expect to be Prime Minister at this time, Anthony Albanese sure as hell didn't expect to be leader of the opposition. So it's it's kind of the, it's the one side of the of, there's two sides of the one coin to my mind. I mean, look, Albanese. No one would no one would question his commitment to the Labor cause, and he's a man that's been around for a long time. But honestly, we've yet to see any form of opposition in his leadership of the Federal Labor Party. Since he's taken the job, and just through, just just by by the way, he wasn't elected that position. He just very conveniently, you know, just slipped himself into it. I mean, took advantage of the crisis that had happened after the election defeat, and and put himself forward and was basically elected unopposed. Well, I mean, there was no election within the Labor membership, so I think it's problematic. You know, it's problematic that you've got an opposition that's pretty much in lockstep with the coalition government which is a ultra-conservative government. I mean, you know, I think that there's too much flip-flopping. There's not enough. There's, uh, to my mind, there's really kind of basic media gas. I mean, putting forward, having ministers making really important statements with an empty bench behind them, and clearly they do that before question time, you know, at the time they're allowed to. But it ain't rocket science to make sure there's a few nodding heads behind behind you when you're doing that kind of thing. So I don't know who's who's doing his media advising. I gather they're working on a whole lot of policies to take to the next election. But I think the policies that they had the first time around were pretty solid, actually. I mean, OK, some of them didn't quite get across the line, but why throw the baby out with the bathwater? And, you know, you've got to stick to your guns politically, don't you? Otherwise, you lose your credibility. Well, that's and, exactly right. you know, I mean, they basically lost the election because of a scare campaign over a so-called, you know, death tax that was non-existent. It was the scare t- campaign, and it was also this character called Mr. Palmer up in Queensland, who spent a great deal of money um, on billboards. First time we've ever actually seen that phenomenon in Australian election. I mean, that's that is a real concern because if that means that people who have a lot of money can basically go and um, in this volatile political climate, climate can go and buy an election. Yeah, and I just think that it's the wrong way to go. I think that that had a major impact. If you think about the seats that actually in which the coalition won, a lot of those were won off the preferences of Palmer in Queensland. You know, I mean, there were some... The biggest losses were in Queensland, and that was where he spent most of the money. So join the dots. I mean, I'm not saying that... Look, it was always going to be a tight election. And I don't think that Bill Shorten was necessarily the best salesperson... But and you know maybe there were too many policies. Maybe it was just like oh go figure. There's every day there's a, another big policy and how is all this going to be funded? And or maybe all of those things came into play. But I just think that there's some really worrying things happening in the electorate. And you know the buying buying bill, hundreds of billboards and spending millions and millions of dollars. I think is a really really worrying direction. It's not going to change under this government. There's no way that they'll bring in policy to curtail that kind of activity. 
So I guess we'll just have to, I don't know, we'll just have to build our own little uh, castles and put a little moat around it and hope that nobody gets inside. Kay, what are your thoughts on the religious freedom debate here in Australia? Well, I mean, my, I think that everybody should be able to believe what they believe. I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem with religious freedom, but I do have a problem with uh, the argument on religious freedom that is actually used to prop up bigotry and, you know, to queer bash or to, to bash anybody that doesn't fall into a particular, you know, mold, heterosexual mould, let's call it what it is. I mean, I shouldn't say that because a lot of straight people out there think it's ridiculous as well. So if it were just a debate around religious freedom, I think, well, look, that's fine. But when it starts to get really grubby and to talk about the Safe Schools Program, for example, which is really a support program for queer and questioning youth in schools so that they've got some some kind of support from bullying or at a time when they're questioning their sexuality to actually use, you know, arguments around religious freedom to toss something like that out or to argue against, I think it's pretty poor form. So I just don't think it's actually about, I mean, Israel Falau and his ridiculous comments, you know, that all gay people are going to go to hell. Well, Frank, I think it's the best place to be actually. But, you know, I think that you just can't make that those kind of, kind of, broad sweep uh, defamatory statements of a whole section of the community and expect to get off lightly. And it's not about religious freedom. There's actually a lot of Christian folk out there that think this whole debate is ridiculous. But I do think there's an argument for the church paying taxes. And I think if the church paid their taxes, we probably have enough money for the social security programs that we we are clearly going to need and the programs that we're going to need for action you know effective action on climate change and the like so i mean i i kind of think that there's the whole lot of things happening here it's a very fragmented space james it's it's quite it's, it's a really difficult place to get into because there's so many different splinters going everywhere and it's hard not to sound like a raving lunatic when you start talking about it but we have to keep arguing and we have to keep putting you know a fair perspective forward because otherwise oh i just uh, i dread to think where this country is going to be in 10 years time i think it'll be really frightening absolutely and i think Kay, you've articulated a lot of things that listeners are thinking it's been wonderful chatting with you we must do it again thank you so much for joining us on 3cr and keep loving northeastern victoria yes i will and stay warm thank you very much it's a great pleasure cheers she hasn't lost any of her wit, the indomitable case Sarah there. I am out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday Rave, but taking us out is Goldfrap, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.